I was trying to visualize myself walking up to Bowen Row and pointing a finger and saying, every penny, Bill, or you'll never play the opera again. And I thought better of it. <laughs> it didn't seem like the kind of thing I should say. Hey everyone, welcome back to you regular listeners and greetings to anyone who is a first-time listener. This is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Billick, and I'm, I'm here turning out some important banjo content to keep you warm through these winter months that we are all uh, bracing for. I, I shouldn't say we're all bracing for, because you know who's not bracing for winter? Clint Myers, and that's because he lives down in Australia where it is probably nice and balmy at this point. And uh, the reason I bring up Clint is because he is today's Patreon supporter of this episode. Now, he says he doesn't have too much bluegrass to listen to down there, but uh, because of the podcast, he's been able to check out really cool bands such as Green Sky Bluegrass and the infamous String Dusters. Well, Clint, those are two fantastic choices, and I love hearing about people discovering new music through the show. And I hope you continue to do that because there's a lot of talented players out there. Uh, so anyway, thank you again, Clint Myers, for your support. For everyone else, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and learn how to become a supporter of the show. I couldn't do it without you listeners and really appreciate your generosity. Other than that, support the show by rating and liking and sharing episodes and just stay in touch. We have a great community of fellow picky fingered people out there and uh love being in touch with all of you speaking of being in touch with all of you feel free to reach out with any questions or comments or suggestions or anything else like that uh i, I can be reached at picky fingers banjo podcast at gmail.com or you can find me on most of the common social media platforms and uh connect with me that way so you know what i said to myself the other day i said Keith, you know what we haven't done in a while? We haven't had our old buddy Aaron Jonah Lewis host an episode in quite a while. And a lot of you remember the episodes featuring him and then also introducing him as a potential contributor to some of these interviews. So uh, that's what we have for you today. And this is actually one that was done pre-COVID times. Don't ask why it took so long. Uh, let's just say maybe I was keeping a few uh, aces up my sleeve just in case, I don't know, a global pandemic hit and I needed to supplement my, my normal interview process that got disrupted. So yeah, this was one that Aaron did quite a while ago, but I'm excited to be able to release it now for you to hear. This episode's featured guest is Steve Arkin. Steve is a well-known banjo performer and educator and has a long history of playing some great bluegrass music. He was a member of Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys and is famously known as Bill Monroe's favorite backup banjo player. So that is extremely high praise, especially for all of us who know how important uh, backup playing is. He's gone on to explore more of the old-time world recently, and the guest host, Aaron, does a real good job of covering both of those. 
There are some really great stories of his time with Bill Monroe that I know that you will all love. So uh, sit back and enjoy this interview with Steve Arkin, conducted by Aaron Jonah Lewis. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. My name is Aaron Jonah Lewis, and we're here today with Steve Arkin in Melrose, Massachusetts. Say hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. So Steve is uh, a banjo player who has explored the reaches of bluegrass and old-time music. Uh, the past few decades, he's really been into old-time music, but he did used to play with Bill Monroe's band, and he used to hang out in New York City with all the scene pioneers of the day. And we're going to get some stories about Bill Monroe and about uh, the other people who were around in those days and, uh, and just get Steve's story. Let's hear, let's hear um, about your musical background. How did you first find out about banjo music? Uh, good question. Um, I was in a uh, musical family and not everybody, but enough, a critical mass of people. My father's brother, Dave Arkin, and his brother, Sandy, both played guitar and both sang folk songs. Dave wrote a, a lot of songs for the People's Songbook back in the 40s and was in that circle of, you know, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and everybody. So I got some of that influence through them. My sister, was my, Dave's son, Alan, the actor, was a folk singer before he was an actor. And he was uh, he was in a group called the Tarriers that, in its original form, had a number one hit in 1954, I think, called the Banana Boat Song. Yeah. Um, and another one called Cindy O' oh Cindy. And Alan was the lead singer on most of it, or much of it, certainly on the Banana Boat Song he was. And he taught me my first few guitar chords, and my sister taught me some more and taught me some strums. How old were you at the time? Uh, roughly. When I started playing guitar, probably 13, 14, maybe. And, uh, and I, you know, the music that I listened to at home was the Weavers and Pete Seeger and Burl Ives, who you're not supposed to have listened to in retrospect. And, um, uh, Gene Ritchie and, and Wood, Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly. I mean, all the people that people who were in that circle listened to back then in most cases, deservedly so. And uh, what the banjo, I think what really, I heard some banjo playing. I think I can actually trace the the moment of epiphany when I really fell in love with the banjo to a recording of the Weavers at Carnegie Hall where Pete Seeger played, played an opening frailing because he didn't call it Flyhammer and he didn't get his thumb off the fifth string, but he had a frailing solo on Darling Quarry that at, from where I was at that time, totally astonishing and fascinating. And I think it was that moment when it happened. And I also had a, a, the older brother of a friend of mine across the street played the banjo, and I went to camp, and there were banjo players there. And slowly but surely, I really became interested in it. And I had a friend down the block who, with whom I used to play chess, and he and I um, went, we'd go to Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village to play chess in the southwest corner of the park 
And we ran into a friend who had a banjo in his hand and had one of those, win- and that found out years later, Winnie Winston designed a uh, thing that's based on the, um, the NRA, the, the original NRA, the National Recovery Act, um, hmm. Eagle, uh, you know, emblem. And except that said NLCR, take us back to 1934 or whatever, 1932, 1929. I don't remember when it was. It was the Nula City Ramblers emblem that Winning Winston, who was a good friend of mine, a great banjo player, designed. And through him, I found out that people used to go to Washington Square Park on Sundays to jam. And it was at that point that I used to go in warm weather starting in I don't know, in March and ending in November, people would go there every Sunday from two to six, and then everybody would go to Chinatown afterwards. So I hung out there and I saw a variety of players. I saw the, all the members of the Greenbrier Boys and all the members of the Nola City Ramblers there. I saw Roger Sprung, who in a recent book was described as looking like a cigar store Indian, which is remarkably <laughs> perceptive of the author. Uh, <laughs> And he was a good and interesting banjo player. He was a little sloppy, and sometimes we used to refer to him cruelly as old sausage fingers. <laughs> but he but he actually did a lot. He was actually a path-breaking banjo player nonetheless. So th- anyway, that's the beginning of my banjo thing. And in 1961, I met Bill Keith in Washington Square Park, and we headed off. And I spent a lot of time hanging around, playing music with him and learning emulating what he did and he gave me a few pointers i've never taken a lesson in my entire life but every now and then somebody solves some mystery you know with a simple explanation and that opens up another series of doors so keith definitely was influential and i i I was a good friend he and i used to go to parties together and we used to go visit other banjo players together sometimes and while i was in college in vermont in 1964, in the spring of 1964, Keith called me up and said, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, how would you like to play with Bill Monroe? <laughs> and I knew, I mean, Keith was playing with Bill Monroe. That was the talk. He, he had sort of started by playing with um, Jesus Loves His Mandolin Player. Oh, God, how can I lose those names of those people I knew so well? Lived in Saratoga, New York. Great mandolin player. You can't remember either? <laughs> this is old-timer syndrome. It'll, it'll come back <laughs> to you. It, we can put that in later. We can put it in later. In any event, he did go down and play with some Southern guys in Washington, you know, and that was already a path-breaking thing for a New York City bluegrass player to do because mostly we were a self-contained little bubble. But he did go down and play with Bill Monroe. Ralph Rinsler, who had been the mandolin player in the mandolin, in the, in the uh, Greenbrier Boys, got himself, well, we all thought he was Bill Monroe's manager, but he was actually, Bill Monroe considered him an agent who booked the band into festivals and college concerts, but, but not into all the usual fare, you know, not into the church basements and drive-in movie theaters where the band usually played and certainly not into the Opry. So in any event, Bill had been in the band for almost a year and he was being uh, seduced by the Questkin Jug Band. Maria D'Amato, who had been a bandmate of mine, you know, got hooked up with, with Jeff Muldor and she moved up there and joined that band. 
and they needed a good banjo player. Um, they had Bob Siggins of the Greenbrier Boys play with, I mean, of the Charles River Valley Boys play with them for a while. Before that, they had Bruno Wolf, but they got Keith and, um, and he needed, he and Rinsler were both concerned before Keith joined that band. There was a lot of concern that nobody was paying attention to Bill Monroe, who was truly the father of bluegrass music, although nobody knew that term. And that's why Rinsler got that job working with him because, because Louise Scruggs, who was Earl's wife and who was the publicist for the Foggy Mountain Boys, essentially wrote Bill Monroe out of the history, history books of that music in promoting her husband's band. And, um, Ralph thought that was unfair that, and Ralph coined the term father of bluegrass music to apply to Bill Monroe. And he got this job to gain more visibility for the bluegrass boys. <clears throat> and, um, getting Bill Keith to join the band was the icing on the cake and that he had developed this melodic banjo style, which was called Keith style at the time. And he, he made as almost as big an impact when he joined that band as Earl Scruggs did when he joined the band in 1945. Um, people had never heard banjo playing like that before. And Monroe, Monroe's career soared. You know, he became enormously popular and enormously famous almost overnight. And so the question was, what's going to happen to that style of banjo playing when Bill Keith leaves the Bluegrass Boys? And they both decided that the answer to the problem was getting me in the band since I was a protege of Keith and could play in that style. So uh, they sent me, did you want this whole story of how I got in the band? It's yeah. A funny story. So I, I, I agreed to do it. I had to actually think about it, which is silly, but I did come to inevitably come to the conclusion that this would be a cool thing to do. And I was given instructions to just take a bus down to Nashville and to go to the studios at WSM on Friday night for the Friday night Opry and go and meet Bill in the dressing room. And it was all set. So I took a 23-hour bus trip to Nashville from New York. It stopped everywhere. And I, by asking a lot of people, I finally found WSM and got, you know, got backstage at the Opry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get into that room. And almost passed, I mean, everybody who was anybody was there. I mean, everybody from Johnny Cash to Grandpa Jones to Minnie Pearl to Roy Acuff to you name him, Porter Wagner. And that was pretty exciting. I also ran into um, uh, Jim and Jesse McReynolds and Alan Shelton, who I had met at Sunset Ranch. I used to go to Sunset Ranch, Sunset Park in West Grove, Maryland with Winnie Winston. Uh, for several years before that to hear bluegrass acts who they continually booked there. So I'd gotten to know them. So at least there was somebody I knew back there. They were pretty friendly. Anyway, so Monroe finally walked into the room and I walked up to him and I said, hi, Bill, I'm Steve Arkin. And didn't raise an eyebrow, nothing, just looked right through me. And I said, I'm your new banjo player. <laughs> looked, I was 19 looks right through me again. Um, and I said, 
Bill Keith and Ralph Rinsler told me to come down here and say, turned on his heel and walked away from me. <laughs> and I didn't even have enough money to get a bus on the way back with me. <laughs> so I, I was sort of thunderstruck. And so I found Alan Shelton and I told him the whole story. And I said, what do I do now? And he said, talk to Ken Marvin. I said, who's Ken Marvin? He said, that's Bill's manager. I said, I thought Ralph was his man. Well, Bill was the road manager and also drove the bus. Mm-hmm. So he introduced me to Ken Marvin. And I told him the whole story. And he's like, I didn't hear nothing about that. He said, uh, well, I don't know what to tell you. Just just hang around here and you know, maybe Bill will come up and talk to you. I don't know. So like, last hours, I just stood there with a banjo case and a suitcase with all these, you know, legends of country music milling around me. And toward the end of the show, toward the end of the evening, Monroe walked up to me and I'm standing there with my coat on, with my banjo in his case, leaning on it. And uh, he starts playing the mandolin. He walks right up to me. He's got the mandolin right in my face, and he starts playing one tune after another after another. And I didn't know how to interpret that. I didn't know if he was demonstrating or showing off, or if he expected me to play with him. And I, I had been brought up to believe that the role of the banjo player when a mandolin is playing is not to roll, just to chop chords. That has evolved. You know, that's changed. But at the time, that was a pretty strict rule. So I thought, I'm going to take my banjo out of the case and just go chop, 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 chop behind this mandolin. What am I supposed to do here? And I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to swap. I didn't know if I should be swap. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I was just, so I just, he played probably 12 different tunes in my face. And then he just turned on his heel and walked away. <laughs> And uh, I really didn't know what to make of it. I mean, it was very strange. <laughs> and then a little while, Ken Marvin walked up to me and said, I, I told him what happened. And he said, why don't you stay in the Y with Sandy? And I said, who's Sandy? And he said, Sandy Rothman. He's a kid from California who's writing a paper about Bill Monroe. And he's traveling with the band. And you could share a room at the Y with him. So I found Sandy, who's a great musician, by the way wasn't necessarily the easiest person. He and I didn't get along great, but he's, I have a lot of respect for his musicianship. I think he was not happy that I became the banjo player, which is what he was aspiring to. Um, but in any event, so I found Sandy, and we did stay at the Y. Uh, we stayed there for several nights. The first night that I was there, we heard somebody fiddling with the lock, and we both got really nervous. And I thought of calling down to the desk and reporting it. Sandy didn't want me to, thought we shouldn't make any sound at all, but I whispered to the desk. I said, somebody's trying to get into our room. Did you send somebody? They said, we'll see. Well, and then about five minutes later, I heard a voice say, drop it. And then I heard shots. And we just cowered in that room. We just go out. We, we, and the next morning when we opened the door, there was no sign of anything. When I went downstairs and said, what happened? You know, I told him what room we were in. I said, what happened in our room last night? And the, the person at the desk said, I didn't hear anything. So I don't know what that was all about. But <laughs> and that was pretty scary introduction to, to Nashville at that time. So we were there for several days. And then I got a phone call again from uh, Ken Marvin who says, 
Bill wants you at the Gulf Station in Goodlettsville at 5 a.m. tomorrow. And I said, where's Goodlettsville? He says, it's out of town. I said, well, I don't have a car. How do I get there? He says, you don't have a car. He says, okay, I'll have Missy pick you up. So I said, who's Missy? He said, that's Bill's daughter. So uh, I said, sure. <laughs> I said, how will I recognize her? He said, she's got a blue Eldorado convertible. No, it wasn't. A, it was a Pontiac Bonneville, blue Pontiac Bonneville convertible. So I was up at five o'clock in the morning standing out in front, and I was there for about a half an hour when this blue Pontiac convertible comes up with Missy, who had this big hair, dark hair, but big hairdo. He says, are you Steve? Daddy, Daddy's telling me I should fetch you, so hop in. So I hopped in, and she drove me out to this Gulf station and drove off. And I was there alone. It was dark or darkish. It was just just being dawn. And um, it's a very long station with a little kiosk in the middle of it. And uh, there was a the blue bus, the Bluegrass Boys bus was parked there. And nobody was around. So I just sort of stood there in the, you know, in the early dawn hours. And then after about 10, 15 minutes, uh, a car got up and parked and another guy got, I was standing at one end of the station. Another guy got out at the extreme other end of the station with a banjo case. <laughs> there we were with our banjos at opposite ends, probably 400 foot long gas station. And I didn't feel like making any overtures towards him and he didn't feel like making any overtures towards me. So we stood at our opposite ends. It was like we were going to have a gunfight or something. And we were there for another 15 or 20 minutes when a big battered old station wagon pulls up and out hops out the rest of the band, which at that point, I think it was Joe Stewart was playing fiddle. I don't remember who was in it. Uh, and and Jimmy, Jimmy Monroe was there to play bass and Melissa was along to be the singer to fill the ecological niche that had previously been occupied by, what was her name? The Carolina song, Songbird, Bessie Lee Malden, with whom, Bill was on the outs, but it, she always came in and sang one sort of uh, country classic. And so Melissa was going to fill that. And Ken Marvin, who was going to drive the bus. And um, nobody said anything to me. They all got on the bus. And then Ken came out and waved for me to get on the bus. And I got on the bus. And the bus started driving. And uh, we driving for about a half an hour. Nobody said anything to anybody. And I finally said, you know, sort of politely and quietly as I could, uh, so where are we headed? And I think Joe Stewart gave me an elbow and said, you don't ask that question. <laughs> so, anyway, where we were driving was to Columbus, Ohio, to Freedom Ranch in Columbus, Ohio, where they went out and with the other banjo player and they played three full sets and we all got on the bus and we all came back. You know, we slept on the bus and we came back to Nashville the next day. And I went back into, I, I didn't get to play anything. And then I got called again to go. I got picked up by Missy the, the day after that. And we went on the road for three days to Greer and Spartanburg and Livonia, Georgia, I think, or somewhere around there. The first, the first, the, the first time they played, they called me up in the middle of the last set to play one tune. 
This is the first time Monroe ever heard me play the banjo. I played a tune. He thanked me, and I left the stage. The next day, he called me up in the middle of the third set, but left me on. That, that next afternoon, he left me on stage after I played the one tune. In the set after that, he called me up at the beginning of the third set. And the day after that, I started the concert, and he called Gene, the other banjo player, up in the middle of the third set, left him on stage. <laughs> and the final gig of that tour, I played the whole thing, and Gene got to play one tune and then got thanked and excused from the stage at the end of the third set. I never knew, found out who that guy Gene was. I don't think he was in that band for very long, but in any event, I didn't feel, I sort of felt sorry for him. Uh, but I did, I mean, it had all been prearranged. Nobody ever acknowledged the whole business with Keith and, and Rinsler about me going down there. I'm sure there was communication, but I never heard anything about it at that end of the band. So anyway, that's the long story about how I joined the Bluegrass Boys. And there are too many long stories about what I did when I was there. We'll use up all your time. So We got time. We want to hear more. Yeah. What sort of banjo were you playing? Ah, when I was in that band, I had a, uh, I had a no holes board, uh, 1930 arch top Granada that I had gotten from Ben Ripken, the brother of, Bo jo uh, of Josh Ripken. Do you know who Joshua Ripken is? Mm -hmm. His brother Ben had, um, a couple of good banjos and I got that one from him. And I had swapped an RB5 for it. And right after I played in the band, I was able to get an original five-string RB7 top tension, uh, which I stupidly sold three years later. I wish I still had it. So that's the answer to that question. Yeah. So, yeah, more stories. About more stories yeah, about so my how long, how long did you end up playing with the band? I played with the band. I started playing with them in early June. And I had to go back to college because I was already enrolled and my parents had already paid my admission, my uh, tuition. Um, but in addition to that, I knew that we were going to play the Philadelphia Folk Festival. And I found out from Keith that I had come in second at that festival for the two pre that was the biggest banjo contest in the country at the time. And it was the only one that was blind judged. The judges didn't, the judges sat under the stage. They didn't, and, and the, contestants had a number so the judges unless they recognized you're playing which they did didn't know who you were um which was supposed to ensure fairness so i'd come in second in 62 and 63 and i wanted to enter it in 64 and keith told me that if i was performing at the festival i wasn't eligible to compete so since i had to leave the band anyway i told bill that i was going to do that you know, and I told him that it was because I wanted to win that banjo contest. And he said that was okay. And I saw them there. He was very happy that I won the contest. Uh, it's too bad they didn't let me stay in the band and compete too, because that, I think that would have been the only time we played above the Mason Dixon line in my entire tenure with that band. And I wasn't playing with the band at that time. Hey, sorry to interrupt everybody, but I just couldn't resist an opportunity to tell you about the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments, and that, of course, is Elderly Instruments, which is a family-owned business located in Lansing, Michigan. But if you're not in Lansing, that's okay. They ship worldwide, too, and they just have a vast selection 
of acoustic guitars, electric guitars, ukuleles, mandolins, all the accessories and books that you'd want for either of those, and of course, plenty and plenty of banjos. And something that people don't often think about when you're buying stuff like that, particularly entry-level instruments, is the fact that they have a world-renowned repair shop as well. When all those instruments come into the store, if they do not pass a thorough setup and inspection by the repair shop, they get sent back. And that sometimes angers the suppliers of elderly instruments, but it lets you know that elderly stands by their products. And they also have a helpful and knowledgeable sales staff to help you find what you need. And you can be confident that you're going to get something that is set up to elderly's high quality standards. So if that sounds great, and I know it does, check them out at elderly.com or call 517-372-7880 to speak to one of their helpful salespeople. It's where I go and it's where you should go to. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses, perfect for quarantine by the way, but they have courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. For example, listen to some of the courses. These are just the banjo courses that they offer. Uh, a couple different classes with Bill Evans, such as beginning banjo and bluegrass banjo. You can learn claw hammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and also contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wesley Corbett. And each of those courses includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. So it's everything you need to up your skills, especially in these isolated times. And listen up, because this is the best part. If you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, you're going to get your first month free by going to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's Picky Fingers, all one word, all lowercase, at pegheadnation.com. Check it out. Anyway, there were a bunch of there were a bunch of adventures. One of the interesting adventures was that um, we were headed to some other country music park in Frederick, Maryland, and outside of Roanoke, the car broke down. The bus broke down, rather. Sorry. Uh-huh. Oh, it wasn't outside of Roanoke. The bus broke down in Roanoke, and Bill was furious. You know the song, Happy Traffic Head, the Bluegrass Boys are never late. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really unhappy about that. And the next morning, you know, he was just fuming. And um, I looked out the window, and we were broken down right in front of Don Wino's garage. <laughs> so, so he didn't want to let anybody off the bus. I said, can I go and, you know, I'll go and find Don. You know, they could fix the bus. We can, and they could probably lend us a car, too. So he let me go out, and I went through the garage hollering for Don. And a guy came up and said, uh, Don's, Don's, not at, Don's out of town. Who are you? And I said, well, I, I said, I, I was with the Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. Our bus is broken down right outside. And we were wondering if you could fix the bus and maybe lend us a vehicle so of course we have a gig to make the guy turned out to be um what's his name the found the founder carlton haney was managing the garage the father of the bluegrass festival was the guy who was running 
Keith's garage in uh, in Roanoke. And um, Carlton said, well, I don't know about finding you a car. I said, we've got to have one. Somehow we have to get a car. So he fixed us up with a 1949 black Ford four-door sedan that had no shocks and that had no muffler. <laughs> and we had the six of us uh, the six of us at that time, by the way, being um, Sandy Rothman, guitar, me, banjo, Benny Williams, fiddle, uh, Missy, Melissa Monroe, uh, country songs, Bill Monroe, and Ken Marvin. I think maybe we left Ken Marvin behind because he wouldn't fit. Anyway, yeah, because then we were, we were going to try to hightail it to the gig. So he made Benny Williams the designated driver. The mountains are pretty you know, windy up there. There was no Interstate 81 at the time. So we were going over these secondary roads up and down mountains at over 90 miles an hour. And it was really tough. And we we needed to make the gig on time. So, you know, I was sitting in the back seat and Melissa was sitting next to me and Monroe was sitting on the other side of her. And we had been riding for a while. And she said, Daddy, I got to pee. <laughs> and Bill said, now, Missy, you know we can't afford to stop. <laughs> You're just going to have to hold that. And she says, Daddy, I got to pee. Can I tell this story on your radio show? Yeah. Okay. And he said, uh, Missy, we, we, we keep got to keep going. And she says, Daddy, I, I can't hold it anymore. <laughs> I suddenly started feeling really uncomfortable because <laughs> I was sitting right next to her and I didn't know what. So anyway, he did consent to allowing us to stop at a gas station so she could deal with that. But um, I was sure that <laughs> uh, that wasn't going to end well. But in any event, so we we finally did make it to Freedom Ranch. I mean, this hectic drive, it wasn't Freedom Ranch. I don't remember the name of the place that was in uh, Frederick, but there was a country music park. that There were a lot of country music parks in those days. So we got all set up. We had a we had a stage in the middle of the midway and there was no ceiling or canopy or awning or anything over it. And the heavens opened and it was a huge rainstorm. And we had to play three full sets with our valuable antique instruments with nobody hearing. We were the proverbial tree in the forest with no one there to hear it. Nobody heard us. There was no place. There's no shelter there. And, we kept saying, Bill, you know, this is destroying our instruments. You know, nobody's listening. He says, we have to pay or they, we don't pay. You have to play to get paid or something. So we were kind of stuck there. And um, we played the whole thing. I remember turning my banjo upside down and having water pouring out of the restator. It was <laughs> never, we never got heard by a single person. We played three full sets of music there. And on the way back, the car, the entire exhaust system, other than the muffler, which was already gone, fell out of the car from the manifold on. And we were stuck on a mountaintop and we were trying to get back. We were not too far out of Roanoke, but we were just sort of stuck there. And Monroe, again, was kind of getting antsy about it. And I said, why don't you know, we just go down and flag a car down? And he, he wouldn't do that. He didn't think that was the right thing to do. And I kept pestering him about how that might be a good idea. So finally he put Jimmy, James Monroe out there and he just stood next to the car with his hands at his sides. And I said, 
Bill, why don't you tell him he's got to raise, wave or stick out his thumb or something? And Bill said, no, he's out there. He's doing what he needs to do. So he just stood there and cars drove by him. Then he got back in and said, well, that's not, that ain't working. So then I suggested, then maybe we find a farmhouse that has a phone. There were no cell phones in 1964, you know, and then we can phone in the garage and maybe, you know, somebody will send a car out for us. So he dispatched me and Benny Williams to go up the hill to the farmhouse. So I, we come to the first farmhouse and I'm walking up the front path and Benny is hanging outside by the gate <laughs> like he knew something. And um, I knock on the door and the door opens and there's a double barrel shotgun pointing right at my nose. And I said, look, I'm sorry, look, we're with Bill Monroe and the Blue Rest Boys and our car just broke and we not need to call Don Reno's garage in Roanoke and get him to pick us up. He says, I'm going to count to 10 and you're going to get off my property. So I had to go. I mean, that was really scary. And at that point, Benny wanted to go back. And I said, let's just try another house. You know, it can't be that every house is going to do that. The next house, they're very kind. They let us use the phone. And they sent Ronnie Reno, Don's son, great mandolin player. This was when he was like 16 years old. And he came out in his red Pontiac Bonneville supercharged convertible and met us at the side of the bus. And nobody else want, had the courage to get into that car with Ronnie, so they made me get into the car. And we had to ride down at over 120 miles an hour down that mountain around these curves. It was the scariest thing possible. And he kept going, Yahoo! You know, he was really having a lot of fun. <laughs> so I got down there, and then um, Carlton let me take the bus back up to pick up the guys, which I'd never driven a bus before. That was an interesting experience, too. There were, I, there were a million stories like that uh, from that not very long summer. That Those are two representative tales. Will they suffice? There's another good story in Richard Smith's book called Boss Men. No, it's called Baby, Let Me Follow You Down. Or it's called Can't You Hear Me Calling. I don't even remember what the name of that book was, but there's a whole chapter about the circumstances later in the summer. I did what I found out later every single bluegrass boy has done, which is to say, when are you going to pay me, Bill? <laughs> that was kind of tough, too. He, was, uh, he wasn't generous with compensation. But he was a very nice man, and he was always nice to me, and he always said nice things to me and about me um, for the rest of his life. That sound was mail coming through the mailbox. It's a very homey sound. It is a homey sound. Why do you think he liked you so much? Um, I mean, not not to say people naturally. People would naturally like you anyways. But that doesn't necessarily follow. But People have different you know, stories about Bill Monroe. And yet, somehow you, you fit in great in his band and he really liked you. Well, he, he one thing that he said at the time and he said afterwards is that he really liked my backup playing. In Jim Rooney's book, he had a quote where he actually said that I was his favorite backup banjo player. Um, so that that's one reason. I mean, that's certainly important. You know, it, it, the funny thing is, I'm not sure I agreed with him because my one of my very favorite banjo players at that time was Alan Shelton, still is to this day, who played with Jim and Jesse and had a wonderful, he had a sort of right-hand swinging 
right hand that I, people used to call it the Shelton bounce. And I thought it was really an exciting way to play the banjo. And he was very influential on me and on Bill Keith and on lots of other people. And when I was having a conversation with him about who's your favorite banjo player, and he was naming various people, and I asked him what he thought of Alan Shelton, and he said, that boy has no sense of time. <laughs> and only only recently have I come to understand that what he meant by that was that Alan Shelton's sense of time was different from Bill Monroe's sense of time. The two of them are two of the people with the most interesting senses of rhythm in the entire world of bluegrass, but not necessarily compatible. So I don't know. I think that part was it. Part of it was uh, he was flattered at the time to have people from the North, you know, to, that he, that his music was attracting people from outside its original regional boundaries. And he was, he was thrilled that Keith came down and played with him. And, you know, and I was another what they are on my heels and, and Sandy Rothman too. And then on our heels, Gene Lowinger and Richard Green and, uh, and Peter Rowan, especially and some other important players as well came from the North or from the West. And, um, that was part of the, that sort of made him proud that his music was becoming that popular and that widespread in its following. Did you ever encounter any anti-Semitism? Well, this was the summer of 1964, which was, if you remember, Freedom Summer. I believe this is the summer that uh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were murdered in Mississippi, among other things. And um, maybe some of the uh, Selma, I'm not sure which of the horrifying encounters took place that summer, but it was Freedom Summer. I had actually gone on uh, some Freedom Rides the previous summer, not anything daring, we used to go on Route 95 between Baltimore and Washington to integrate restaurants at the um, at the service areas on, you know, on Route 95. Essex was it Chesapeake House and Maryland House were actually segregated, and that was that was the most activist civil rights that I'd done prior to 1964, but. Every single store I walked into during my tenure with Monroe, every single place I went, every store, every gas station, every place, it's like they had talking points. They all had the same talking points assigned to them. They always said, uh, you're not from around here, are you? Are you sure? They always said this. I don't know if I want to mock their accents or just say it in my own. Are you sure you're not down here to interfere with our way of life? That was the standard question. I don't know where they got that. Everybody asked me that question. It was amazing. So I had the most awkward encounter was in, um, I think, another visit to Livonia, Georgia, was where this happened, which is right in the mountains of Georgia, right near where South Carolina and Georgia and North Carolina all meet. And uh, at some point, I just... I. I used to have to ask Bill, you know, I I want to go and get breakfast. And I say, Bill, you know, could I get some money? I need to get breakfast. And he'd say, Well, how much do you reckon you'll need, Steve? And I'd say, uh, well, how about two dollars? And he'd say, That's too much. You can get a fine breakfast for 75 cents, and that's what I'm gonna give you. You know, I mean that was really <laughs> that was difficult um to maintain your sense of 
pride and self-worth and having to go groveling like that. So um, finally, in Livonia, I think I just said, Bill, couldn't you just pay me on a regular basis the way you do the other guys in the band? Not realizing that he wasn't paying anybody on a regular basis. And he said, and I quote, you Jewish people are all alike. You're all after the almighty dollar. I didn't know what to say. I don't think I had a record. I don't think I said anything. I, so it was a little thunderstruck by that. And I think at that point, I resolved to maybe, it was getting on in August and it was time, you know, I had the festival banjo contest to go to and I had to go back to college in Vermont. And I guess I figured maybe I'd done this long enough. But I did go and I called the uh, Musicians Union in Nashville and I told them the story. And the guy I spoke to, he was being helpful and he said, and I quote, you tell Monroe that he'll give you every cent that's coming to you or he'll never play the Opry again. <laughs> and I was trying to visualize myself walking up to Bill Monroe and pointing a finger and saying, every penny, Bill, or you'll never play the Opry again. And I thought better of it. <laughs> it didn't seem like the kind of thing I should say. But anyway, so there was, but there was, yeah, there was a little friction in the air. And so I, then I decided I would just call my parents and ask them to, wire me some money so I could get home and start, you know, practicing for the banjo contest and catching up on other stuff. Uh, I had a girlfriend back in New York that I wanted to see, so I had a lot of motives for going back. Um, so I walked, I'm, I asked several people where the nearest payphone was, and there was only one payphone in town, and it was in this gas station. That It was like a, a six-point, seven-point intersection, like spokes coming out of this of a hub of a wagon wheel in the center of town then. And it was all dirt, dirt roads. And in the center of town was this gas station that had like an oval-shaped kiosk in the middle and then pumps on all four sides. And uh, there's there one entrance into that kiosk, which is where the phone was, because I asked somebody and they said, you know, it's inside. So there's a bunch of people who looked they were all wearing bib overalls and had big bushy beards. No, no offense to Aaron, who has one. And they were all suckered on reeds and chewing tobacco and everything. And, you know, I just sort of walked up and said, excuse me, I'd like to use the phone. And they sort of parted. And I walked in. And as I was walking up to the phone, I could feel the pressure of their eyes on my back. They all walked in and sort of formed a circle around me. Just as I was saying to the operator, I'd like to make a collect call to Brooklyn, New York. And they just, they're kind of looking at each other and poking each other in the ribs. And my mother answered the phone and I said, and she said, Steve, how are you? I'm so glad you called. We wanted to hear from you. Your father and I are just leaving to go to California. We're going to be incommunicado for two weeks. <laughs> going across, driving across country to go visit my father's brothers. So all I could say was, I'm glad I caught you. I just want you to know what a great what a great time I'm having down here picking the five string with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. <laughs> and it's really wonderful. Every, the hospitality here is great, and I just love it. And don't worry about me a bit. <laughs> that was the end. She said, okay, bye-bye. We'll see, talk to you in two weeks. So I get off the phone, and one of the guys walks up to me and says, so you're one of them Brooklyn Jew boys, aren't you? Are you sure you're not down here? I shouldn't copy his accent, but I'm doing it. Sure, you're not down here to interfere with our way of life. And I said, 
no, I'm not. And he says, and, and did I hear you say you can pick a five? I said, well, yeah. And you're here with bail? I said, yeah. He said, well, I didn't hear anything that Bill's in town. I said, well, he is, you know. They said, well, where's he at? And I said, well, follow me and I'll show you. So I walked and these guys are walking behind me. And we walk up to the bus and Bill's leaning on the front of the bus with one foot up on the bumper and his, you know, his Stetson hat pulled down over his eyes and he's filing nails on his left hand. And he looks up and he sees the scene of me walking up the street with these guys behind me. And he's, there's a sort of a faint, sadistic smile on his face. And I say, hey, Bill. And he says, nothing. He's just filing his nails. And then I said, hey, Bill, these, these guys didn't know you were going to be in town. Doesn't say anything. So finally, one of the one of those guys pushes me out of the way and says, Bill, we found this Jew boy down at the at the gas station, and he's trying to tell us he can pick a five. And we know no Yankee can pick a five. We know he's down here to interfere with our way of our life, right? And Bill doesn't say anything for a long time, and then gradually he tilts his hat back up on his head, and he looks up, and he looks over at them, and he says, I believe he can. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, that was uh, my heart was kind of beating pretty heavily yeah. at that point. But and then he was all it was all good. I mean, he's he really was nice to me. And and every time I went to hear that band play, every single time I went to hear that band play, he called me up on stage and left me on for the rest of the set. It was always fun to do that. And I think he did that with most of the the bluegrass boys. I think that was sort of his um a tradition. It was like one of the one of the bennies of being a bluegrass boy. You also played with the Kentucky Colonels, is that right? No, I was never, I was never, I mean, I was friends with them, but I never played with them. I did play in Northern Lights for um, a number of years. The earliest success, if you can call it success, that I had before, two years before I played with Bill Monroe, I was in a band in New York uh, called the Downstate Rebels with Jody Stecker, who is a phenomenal musician, who was, uh, I think he was 15 at the time, or 16 at the time, and, um, and Gene Lowinger, who went on to be a fiddler, the first Northern fiddler to play with Bill Monroe. Not long after I left the band, he joined the band along with Peter Rowan. So we formed a band called the Downstate Rebels, and we played the, you know, the sort of Hootenanny circuit around New York. And, playing at Gertie's Folk City. They used to have a uh, hootenanny night, open microphone night. On one Monday night, there was uh, a talent scout who worked for Bobby Darren of Mac the Knife fame who heard us and then asked us afterwards to give, a, our, give him our phone numbers. We didn't know we'd bet the Bobby Darren connection. He just said that he was a talent scout for a record company. Well, it turned out that Bobby Darren we got invited to a meeting in the Brill Building in New York, which is sort of the building with most of the record company executives in it, to meet with Bobby Darren, who told us that he wanted to produce an album of us in Atlantic Studios, which was the first eight-track studio in the history of, you know, of recording. <clears throat> and he said that the re his motive for doing that, because we asked him, was that he was afraid that with the big folk revival, what we thought of as the great folk scare going on, that singers 
crooners or whatever you call him, his kind of singing were going out of style. And he didn't know how long he could continue to be a singer. He didn't know he would remain in vogue. So he wanted to continue his career in music by becoming a record producer. And he said, and this is a quote, he said, so I want, when you are on the Jack Parr show, and he asks you, was Bobby Darren really there in the booth when you made your first record? You'd say, he was the engineer who recorded the whole thing, and he gets the credit for it. That's the, he, That's what he wanted out of it. And we did make, we had meetings with our parents. We had a lawyer. We signed up a contract and everything, and we recorded this album. And what we didn't know how to do is to get the weak links out of the band. <laughs> and they didn't know how... They didn't know which instruments were playing leads and which instruments were playing rhythm. So they mixed it completely terribly. I mean, they didn't know if something was a banjo break or a mandolin break or a guitar break or a bass break or, you know. So it did, it, it, it was recorded under spectacular circumstances in this really great studio, but it didn't come out very well. It never got released, but the band got to play in Carnegie Hall and in Town Hall. In both cases, at Hootenannies, quote unquote. So that was fun, and that was sort of what started me thinking about playing, playing out more. Anyway, okay. So we have about ten minutes left to talk about where we are now, how we got to where we are now, because you don't play much bluegrass anymore. You do play some three fingers still, but in a, different a lot context. of three finger. Peter Zago, who was the Dobro player. And the Downstate Rebels, which was a bluegrass band, uh, has remained a friend of mine for a long time. We have a lot of interests in common. He's an architect. We're both interested in architectural history. He became interested in old-time music. When we Every now and then, we'd fall out of touch. And a couple of years later, one of us would get in touch with the other. And I remember that in like around 1991, he got back in touch with me. And he has, had been playing old-time music for a while banjo fiddle guitar and he was at the time especially interested in banjos and in fact collecting banjos and in fact he put together the by far the best collection of pre-civil war banjos from the minstrel era um and also a nice collection of of classic banjos from the 1880s and 1890s so zago you know introduced me to old time told me he was playing old time music I, i wasn't that interested in it i had played some old-time music when I first started. Before I heard Earl Square, when I started playing around Washington Square, I played old-time music. I loved the Nula City Ramblers. And when I lived in Ohio from 1969 to 73, I lived right around the corner from Lisa Ornstein, who was a great uh, Quebecois fiddler, but who was also was a good old-time fiddler. And we used to play with her and Peter Hoover, who died this year, who was a very important collector and a very good, um, one of the best, pioneers of banjo of Clawhammer banjo in the north and so i had those as influences but when i got back to new york in 73 i went right back into bluegrass and didn't give it another thought until i had to share the ride down to clifftop with zago because he couldn't do it by himself he needed somebody to share the driving and i was not interested in going to clifftop the southern appalachian string band festival and i kept saying that I said, you know, I like this music, but it's going to drive me crazy. It's so incredibly boring. And I remembered saying 
stupid things like, isn't this just like a catch basin for people who can't cut it in bluegrass? <laughs> and more idiotic things of that ilk. And he played me, when I think back of the array of things that he played me to try to persuade me otherwise, it was incredibly great curatorial skills. I mean, he played me all the best living guys and all the best dead guys. And I think I started to understand that there was some charm there. But when I got to Clifftop, I would say it was within two or three hours after walking around and listening to the quality of the music that was coming out of people and how much more exciting, how much more varied it was. As a bluegrass banjo player, I knew every bluegrass banjo player knows one crooked modal tune, and that's Clinch Mountain Backstep. I was privileged to know one other crooked modal tune, and that was Pretty Little Indian from the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers, a recording by Curly Ray Klein when he was in the, in the Lonesome Pine Fiddlers. And I thought those were great tunes, but I didn't think there was another tune of that ilk out there. And at Clifftop, I discovered this cornucopia of them, and I discovered people who could play them so beautifully on fiddle, on banjo, as a string band, or just in small groups or whatever. And I just was blown away by it. And that's the only time in my entire life that I've done a 180 degree turn. That's an accurate measurement. So um, if you don't have a Peter Zago to, to turn you on to old time music, what would you recommend people listen to? If, you know, let's say bluegrass banjo players who maybe have had some exposure, but maybe don't think much of it, don't really know. You have to sort of slide into it um, gradually. I, I guess I would listen to some contemporary players who are really good. I would listen to Bruce Molsky. I would listen to, um, there are lots of new people who've come up recently, but I don't know how widely this stuff is. I'd listen to Brand Leftwich, who's a wonderful fiddler. I'd listen, listen to Rafe Stefanini. I'd also listen to some of the, de- the, the scope of old-time music has broadened. I mean, the original focus in the North City Ramblers day was on the early commercially recorded country music before World War II. And then in the in the 60s, especially with, when Alan Jabour went down, you know, to meet with Henry Reed, he became he went sat down south to collect ballads uh, from a literary perspective. And he heard Henry Reed play fiddle and was fascinated both by his playing style and his repertoire. And he was the first person, really, who's northerner who specialized in, or the first revivalist who specialized in uh, the style of a particular player or a particular region. Usually, before that, people were trying to be eclectic and play all this stuff. So he zeroed in on this guy, Henry Reed. And under his influence, other great players started focusing on the area, the Round Peak area of, of uh, North Carolina, players like Tommy Jarrell. Uh, Kyle Creed, Fred Cockrum, Charlie Lowe. Um, and you got bands like the, the Fuzzy Mountain String Band, and you got the Alan, Alan Jabor had the Hollow Rock String Band, and you had the Red Clay Ramblers and some other. And then, of course, uh, the band that really put old time music on the map, which was the, um, the Highwood String Band. The Highwood String Band in particular was very exciting. Their tempos were. You know, 190 clicks and, uh, or thereabouts. And, um, and they were very funny and they were very good. And, uh, and they developed a cult following. I mean, the, the real explosion of interest in old time music. I mean, a lot of people 
I, I think people from some of those other early bands noticed that, you know, that uh, Plank Road or or the Fuzzy Mountain String Band, those people said, well, you know, everybody liked our music, but nobody went crazy over our music like, like they did over Highwoods. So I would listen, to, I would try to dig up, they have, there's an album of some of the greatest hits called Feed Your Baby's Onions, which was the name of a tune, the subtitle of which is So You Can Find Them in the Dark. Uh, that, that would be a good introduction as well. Or the best introduction is to go to an old-time music festival at Clifftop in uh, in Clifftop, West Virginia, which is not too far from Beckley, not too far from Somerville, not too far from Fayetteville. That's an amazingly good festival. It's worth going there. I know a lot of bluegrass musicians show up there. Tim O'Brien is almost a regular there, for instance. Um, I recommend that. So um, if someone wanted to hear some of your music, where would someone find your music? You know, the best thing to do is do Steve Arkin videos on um, on YouTube. There are a lot of videos of me from jam sessions and from concerts. I'm in a band now that's based in Ithaca, New York, called New Cut Road. There is a commercial album that was extremely popular, very, very top selling. It's sold out, but you can still download it. Uh, the band was uh, Troublesome Creek. And the album was Fast As Time Can Take Me. It was on the county label. Um, and there's still a county website, and you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on other websites as well. Um, but it's called Fast As Time Can Take Me by Troublesome Creek String Band. And thanks so much, Steve. There's We might have to do a part two, because I know there's so much more <laughs> where this all came from. But uh, is there anything that we're leaving out that you'd like to add? I mean, I don't know. You know, this I've had a lot of interesting adventures. It's you don't have enough time to hear about them all. I, I would gladly do, sit down with you and do this again. You would, okay? <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to be back at your house soon. <laughs> okay, so, okay, sure. Okay, well, well, let's call that the end of installment number one. <laughs> Thank you, Picky Fingers. Enjoy the banjo forever and spread the good word. <laughs> See you soon. And that's going to do it for Aaron Jonah Lewis's interview with former bluegrass boy Steve Arkin. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you especially to Clint Myers, who was the Patreon supporter of this episode. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to learn more about that. You heard a bunch of sound clips in this, and I want to let you know what those were. So in order, it was Yell in the Shouts. I have no idea what that means, but the title of the tune is Yell in the Shoats by the Troublesome Creek String Band, the Banana Boat Song by the Terriers, Darling Cory performed by the Weavers, Devil's Dream by Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, Jeff Sturgeon uh, performed by Bruce Molsky, Soldier's Joy played by Henry Reed, and then Walking in the Parlor by the High Woods String Band. You can keep in touch with me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And everyone stay warm out there, all right? It's hard to play banjo with cold fingers. So I'm going to do the same, and I'll start working on the next episode, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>